This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. We're putting two literary giants against each other for today's podcast, Charles Dickens versus Leo Tolstoy, two of the great 19th century novelists who both capture the spirit of their age, but whose legacy was more enduring. To battle it out, Intelligence Squared brought together celebrated writers John Milan for Dickens and Simon Shama for Tolstoy. There's a cast of star actors as well, including Tom Hiddleston, who bring the arguments to life with readings from the author's works. The debate was chaired by author, playwright and broadcaster Bonnie Greer for our event which was originally aired in 2018. This is part one of a three-part episode, and if you'd like to enjoy the full conversation right now, then you can head over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership and enjoy more in-depth, honest debate and compelling conversations. You can also subscribe to our channel via Apple by hitting the subscribe button in your Apple Podcasts app. Part two of this conversation will follow in the next episode. Now let's join Bonnie Greer and our guests for Dickens versus Tolstoy. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this Intelligence Square debate, Dickens versus Tolstoy, the battle of the great 19th century novelists. And I have to say, it's quite an honor to be on this stage with the two distinguished academics and experts and this wonderful company. So I'm very grateful to be here. In one corner, we have Charles Dickens, Great Expectations, of course, Bleak House, you know, you know the drill. And in the other, we have Leo Tolstoy, War and Peace, Anna Karenina, you know that drill. And if, in fact, if you could even try and imagine 19th century literature, world literature, without these titans, try, you can't. For Charles Dickens, Stage right, John Mullen, Lord Northcliffe Professor of Modern English Literature, University College London. John has written, among many, many things, an acclaimed book on Jane Austen. And next year, he will be publishing Dickens' Tricks, a book about the techniques Dickens uses in his fiction. And stage left, for Leo Tolstoy, we have Simon Sharma. 
Simon is a university professor of art history and history at Columbia University in New York. He is one of Britain's most popular and admired historians and television uh, broadcasters, and he invented a genre as far as I'm concerned. One minute, your passion. How did you find Tolstoy? Well, I had, I had a really good friend who died much too young, who was a friend of mine at college, and he simply could not believe that anyone had the temerity to call themselves an historian without actually having read War and Peace. So I did immediately, um, while I was actually having a, um, a job in the... I was the only only straight man in the soft furnishings department at Liberty. So that's what led you so, to it, yeah. Yeah. So I used to go around the corner to a veggie restaurant and get my dose of Tolstoy. It's Tolstoy, what I wanted. And Very never look back. Very good. Thank you. And John. Um, well, I think it's all down to somebody called Mr. Riggiani, who I fear isn't with us anymore. But if he is out there, I owe it all to you, Mr. Riggiani, who was a rather sardonic occasionally slightly sneery English teacher um, who did a wonderful thing which was once a week, I think it was on Friday and I think it was when he was tired and bored, he would read aloud to us every Friday and that's what he did in English and I remember that two books he read aloud were Alistair MacLean's Force 10 from Navarone <laughs> which actually was quite good and uh, and David Copperfield. I realise now he must have much abridged it. But it was just hearing him read it out. And um, we're going to have a bit of David Copperfield yeah, later. But yeah. I'll still hear Mr. Riggiani's voice as a kind of descant, I think. So, it, so for both of you, these were pivotal moments. A moment that this work spoke to you at some point And became, you became sort of attached to it. Yeah, I think, I mean, I would just say to, to scramble things up a bit, my father used to read Dickens every Sunday after tea. Yeah. So I'm, you know, this is an evening of tempestuous, tempestuous <laughs> conflict for me. And divided but, love. Yeah, yeah. Divided love. John Mullen and Dickens. Thank you. Um, okay, so I'm going to play an honourable part here, and I, I determined before... I arrived here that I wasn't going to be oppositional and compare and contrast and slag off or anything like that. But I, I will, after all, I thought, I, I love Tolstoy. I quite like Simon. Um, <laughs> but I thought I would just say one little thing about Tolstoy and Dickens right at the beginning. And that is just anecdotal, really, which is a couple of years ago, I visited... Uh, Tolstoy's country house, Yasnaya Polyana, about 150 miles south of Moscow, and we were getting, it was a British council, Bino, and so we were getting the sort of, the full tour, and from a Tolstoy expert, and I was shown into the room where Tolstoy died, where also his last place of study and writing was, and he shifted his study around the house at different times. And she said, she told us, the one thing that remained constant wherever he was working and writing in his years in the house, was the picture above his desk. And you know what I'm going to say, don't you? The picture above his desk was a portrait, still there, the very one, and it's a portrait of Charles Dickens. <laughs> we could stop there, could we, maybe? Um, it's a portrait of Charles Dickens, and... He had it there. Every time he looked up, thinking, hmm, what's Kitty going to say next? There was Charles Dickens. 
And that's because I think Dickens did what I would argue he does to many, many writers, but actually to all his readers. And weirdly, even to some people who sort of haven't actually read a whole novel, but have heard the words, phrases, even bits of dialogue on TV or cinema. He feeds our imaginations like no other writer. I meant to say, as a claim for his special prowess, the most important thing about Dickens and the way he feeds our imaginations is he's funny. He's funny. But that's not right, is it? That's not quite right. I think it's better to say, I decided that I changed from the Victoria line to the Jubilee line and thought saying he's funny is not good enough. That's not right. He's funny when he shouldn't be. That's what's great about Dickens. He's funny at the wrong times in the unexpected places where everybody's at a funeral or a deathbed. He's funny. And he himself had a description of what he was doing when he was funny and the wrong places at the wrong times. And it's in Oliver Twist, and he says, he's comparing his writing, very characteristic of Dickens, he's comparing his writing to the stage melodrama, much despised by critics, much loved by audiences of his day. And he's talking about the way in a stage melodrama of his day, just after a scene where somebody's languishing in a dungeon, somebody will come on and sing a comic song. And he says that his writing, like such melodrama, is, he says, like a side of streaky bacon. The tragic and the comic, you see, absurdly alternate. But, as he says, that's what it's like, isn't it? That's what life is like, the absurd and the comic alternating alongside each other when they shouldn't be. And I hope you'll hear that in our first reading, which has got quite a bit of streaky baconness in it, I think. Um, it doesn't need much introduction because it's the opening of a novel. It's the opening, the very opening of Great Expectations. Country, down by the river, within as the river wound, 20 miles of the sea. My first, most vivid and broad impression of the identity of things seems to me to have been gained on a memorable, raw afternoon towards evening. At such a time, I found out for certain that this bleak place overgrown with nettles was the churchyard and that Philip Pirrip, late of this parish, and also Georgiana, wife of the above, were dead and buried. And that Alexander, Bartholomew, Abraham, Tobias and Roger, infant children of the aforesaid, were also dead and buried, and that the dark, flat wilderness beyond the churchyard, intersected with dikes and mounds and gates, with scattered cattle feeding on it, was the marshes, and that the low, leaden line beyond was the river, and that the distant, savage lair from which the wind was rushing was the sea, and that the small bundle of shivers growing afraid of it all and beginning to cry was Pip, Hold your noise! cried a terrible voice as a man started up from among the graves at the side of the church porch. Keep still, you little devil, or I'll cut your throat. A fearful man, all in coarse grey, with a great iron on his leg. A man with no hat and with broken shoes, and with an old rag tied round his head. 
A man who'd been soaked in water and smothered in mud and lamed by stones and cut by flints and stung by nettles and torn by briars, who limped and shivered and glared and growled and whose teeth chattered in his head as he seized me by the chin. Oh, don't cut my throat, sir. Pray, don't do it, sir. Yep, tell us your name. Quick. Pip, sir. Once more, give it mouth. Pip. Pip, sir. Show us where you live. Put out the place. I pointed to where our village lay, on the flat inshore among the alder trees and pollards, a mile or more from the church. The man, looking after me at the moment, turned me upside down and emptied my pockets. There was nothing in them but a piece of bread. When the church came to itself, for he was so sudden and strong that he made it go head over heels before me, and I saw the steeple under my feet. When the church came to itself, I say, I was seated on a high tombstone, trembling while he ate the bread ravenously. You young dog. What fat cheeks you got. I believe they were fat, though I was at the time undersized for my years and not strong. Darn me if I couldn't eat them. And if I didn't have a mind to it. I earnestly expressed my hope that he wouldn't and held tighter to the tombstone on which he had put me, partly to keep myself upon it, partly to stop myself from crying. Now, looky here. Where's your mother? There, sir. He started, made a short run, and stopped and looked over his shoulder. There, sir. Also, Georgiana. There's my mother. Oh. Hmm. So, um, uh, is that your father along um, your mother? Yes, sir. Him too late of his parish. Ah. Who do you live with? Uh, supposing you're kindly let to live, which I hadn't made up my mind about. My sister, sir. Mrs. Joe Gargery. Wife of Joe Gargery. The blacksmith, sir. Blacksmith? Hmm. Said he, and looked down at his leg. After darkly looking at his leg and me several times, he came closer to my tombstone, took me by both arms and tilted me back as far as he could hold me, so that his eyes looked most powerfully down into mine, and mine looked most helplessly up into his. Now, look at here. The question being whether you're to be allowed to live. Do you know what a file is? Yes, sir. And you know what Whittles is? Yes, sir. Hmm? After each question, he tilted me over a little more, so as to give me a greater sense of helplessness and danger. Now you get me a file, and you get me whittles. He tilted me again. You bring them both to me. He tilted me again. All out of your heart and liver out. He tilted me again. I was dreadfully frightened and so giddy that I clung to him with both hands and said, If you were kindly pleased to let me keep upright, sir, perhaps I shouldn't be sick, and perhaps I could attend more. He gave me a most tremendous dip and roll so that the church jumped over its own weathercock. Then he held me by the arms in an upright position on the top of the stone and went on in these fearful terms. You bring me tomorrow morning early that file and them whittles. You bring the lot to me and that old battery over there. You do it and you don't never dare say a word or dare to make a sign concerning your having seen such a person as me or any person some ever. And you should be let to live. You fail or you get my my, my, my words in me get any tell any person whatever. Uh, 
No matter how weird, how small it is, then your heart and your liver shall be tore out, roasted, and ate. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So I'm trusting not just to Dickens, but to Kit, my secret weapon for. <laughs> The two are entangled, of course, because, as I remember from Mr. Reggiani reading David Copperfield, what Dickens does is childhood like nobody else. Um, but I hope you could hear the streakiness of the bacon there. Um, that incredible opening scene from Great Expectations is a real place, isn't it, on the Kent Marshes. You can go there, actually. You can see the graves. Um, but it's also a weird place from a fairy story. Um, it's a frightening uh, episode, and it's also a comical episode. It's those combinations which are so extraordinary, so true to the fantastic part of all our lives. Also, you hear, I think, in that, in that reading, especially in Tim's wonderful impersonation of Magwitch, what Dickens contributed to all our imaginations and our ears, his idiolex, as the academics pompously call it, the voices of all his characters, each one different, each one distinctive of themselves. Um, in the next passage, however, because we're going to have quite a lot of dialogue, I wanted a little snatch of something different, but in a way just as important, which is... An example I sort of snatched at of why the adjective Dickensian has become so easy a part of our language. Dickensian is a word for all sorts of things. Um, one of them being an all-embracing adjective for the kind of force of his imagination that takes a place 
In this case, it's going to be London. And both describes it and transforms it. So now, as a little example of that, Tom is going to read from a section of the opening of Bleak House. Fog everywhere. Fog up the river where it flows among green aits and meadows. Fog down the river where it rolls defiled among the tears of shipping and the waterside pollutions of a great and dirty city. Fog on the Essex marshes. Fog on the Kentish heights. Fog creeping into the cabooses of collier brigs. Fog lying out on the yards and hovering in the rigging of great ships. Fog drooping on the gunwales of barges and small boats. Fog in the eyes and throats of ancient Greenwich pensioners, wheezing by the firesides of their wards. Fog in the stem and bowl of the pipe of the wrathful skipper, down in his close cabin. Fog cruelly pinching the toes and fingers of his shivering little apprentice boy on deck. Chance people on the bridges peeping over the parapets into a nether sky of fog. With fog all around them. As if they were up in a balloon. Or hanging in the misty clouds. Gas looming through the fog in divers places in the streets. Much as the sun may from the spongy fields be seen to loom by husbandman and ploughboy. Most of the shops lighted two hours before their time, as the gas seems to know, for it has a haggard and unwilling look. Yeah, I mean, the more Dickens, less of me, the better chance I have, evidently. Um, I mean, you can hear perhaps, you know, it goes on for pages, it's all as wonderful as that. And you can hear perhaps what is, if you're a little critic, so wonderful about Dickens. He breaks every rule for how you're supposed to write. He repeats himself, he personifies gloriously and illogically. He loves the fantastic, those people seeming to float in a balloon in the fog. And a little earlier in the, in the opening from the passage that Tom read, um, he, he, he allows him, he's, he's describing how awful it is in November in, La, in London. And he says, it's, there's as much mud, he says, in the streets as if the waters had but newly retired from the face of the earth. And it would not be wonderful to meet a megalosaurus, 40 feet long or so, waddling like an elephantine lizard up Hoburn Hill. It's the first dinosaur in English fiction, trivial fact. (laughs) And it's wonderful. It's monstrous, appalling, and utterly comical with its central London waddle. Um, Dickens's fiction is full of delicious grotesquerie and monsters. But his monsters are such that you let, but he lets the reader see how they've been formed. And this next passage that Zowie and Julia are going to read is an example of that. It's from Great Expectations. Pip, who's age 23 now, moons hopelessly after Estella, the hard-hearted Estella, who's been reared by Miss Havisham to be hard-hearted. And one day, Estella and Pip are summoned from London 
by Miss Havisham to visit them. And they go back to Satie's house and Pip overhears the following dialogue between Estella and Miss Havisham. At least I was no party to the compact. For if I could walk and speak when it was made, it was as much as I could do. But what would you have? You have been very good to me and I owe everything to you. What would you have? Love. You have it. I have not. Mother by adoption. Retorted Estella. Never departing from the easy grace of her attitude. Never raising her voice as the other did. Never yielding either to anger or to bitterness. Mother by adoption. I have said that I owe everything to you. All I possess is freely yours. All that you have given me is at your command to have again. Beyond that, I have nothing. And if you ask me to give you what you never gave me, my gratitude and duty cannot do impossibilities. Did I never give her love? Cried Miss Havisham, turning wildly to me. Did I never give her a burning love, inseparable from jealousy at all times and from sharp pain, while she speaks to me thus? Don't call me mad! Let her call me mad! Why should I call you mad? I, of all people, does anyone live who knows what set purposes you have half as well as I do? Does anyone live who knows what a steady memory you have half as well as I do? I, who have sat on this same hearth on the little stool that is even now beside you there, learning your lessons and looking up into your face when your face was strange and frightening me. Soon forgotten. Time's soon forgotten. No, not forgotten. Not forgotten. No, but treasured up in my memory. When have you found me false to your teaching? When have you found me unmindful of your lessons? When have you found me giving admission? Here. She touched her bosom with her hand. To anything that you excluded. Be just to me. We were so proud. So proud. <laughs> Moaned Miss Havisham, pushing her away, pushing her grey hair with her both her hands. Who taught me to be proud? <laughs> Who praised me when I learnt my lesson? You're so hard. So hard! Moaned Miss Havisham with her former action. Who taught me to be hard? Who praised me when I learnt my lesson? But, but to be proud, to be proud and hard to me! Miss Havisham quite shrieked as she stretched out her arms. Estella, Estella, Estella to be proud and hard to me! Estella looked at her for a moment and with a kind of calm wonder but was not otherwise disturbed when the moment was past she looked down at the fire again. I cannot think, said Estella, raising her eyes after a silence, why you should be so unreasonable when I come to see you after a separation. I have never forgotten your wrongs and their causes. I have never been unfaithful to you or your schooling. I have never shown any weakness that I can charge myself with. Would it be weakness to return my love? But yes, yes, she will call it so. I begin to think, said Estella in a musing way, after another moment of calm wonder, that I almost understand how this comes about. 
If you had brought up your adopted daughter wholly in the dark confinement of these rooms and had never let her know that there was such a thing as the daylight by which she had never once seen your face, if you had done that and then, for a purpose, had wanted her to understand the daylight and know all about it, you would have been disappointed and angry. Miss Havisham, with her head in her hands, sat making a low moaning and swaying herself on her chair, but gave no answer. Or, which is nearer, a nearer case, if you had taught her from the dawn of her intelligence, with your utmost energy and might, that there was such a thing as daylight, but that it was made to be her enemy and destroyer, and she must always turn against it, for it had blighted you and would else blight her. If you had done this, and then for a purpose, had wanted her to take naturally to the daylight, and she could not, you would have been disappointed and angry. Miss Havisham sat listening for a moment, for it seemed, for I could not see her face, but still made no answer. So, I must be taken as I have been made. The success is not mine. The failure is not mine. But the two together make me. I mean, Miss Havisham's a monster, but you kind of feel sorry for her, don't you? That's his trick, or one of his many tricks, to show you how people are made and twisted. And Pip, all the time, is listening to this, and he too has been made by his expectations into a different kind of monster. He's wonderful at populating our imaginations with these characters, populating our language with these characters. I mean, just think, there are more characters in Dickens who've become words in the Oxford English Dictionary than those of any other novelist. Gradgrind, Bumble, Heap, Pecksniffium, they become adjectives. Pobsnappery, nouns. Micawber-ish, best of all maybe, Scrooge. I mean, it's impossible to kind of face the fact that he invented that. It seems snatched out of nature itself. Um, In the last reading, I want to come back to that strange mixture of the dark and the comical, the grim and the funny that is so distinctive of Dickens. And is the thing he shares, I think, with Shakespeare, the jesting in the graveyard. Um, Samuel Johnson said about Shakespeare, the mourner, In Shakespeare's The Mourner Tramps to the Funeral, the reveller staggers from the inn. And that's how it is in Dickens, where funerals are almost inevitably inadvertently funny. Um, In this last passage, which is from David Copperfield, um, we are Shay Micawber. David, and you've got to, the most important thing to remember for this passage is David Copperfield is 12 years old in this passage. His mother has died and the ghastly murdstones have sent him to work in the blacking factory. His one solace is that he has lodgings with the Macorbers. But then they, uh, Mr. Macorber is arrested as he inevitably always is for debt and sent to the debtor's prison. In this passage, he's just been released. So there's a little bit of celebration. And the company 
David, Mr. Micawber, Mrs. Micawber, numerous children, and the orphling, the orphling, by the way, is an orphan from the workhouse who works, who is so down on her luck that she's the Micawber's servant. And uh, this is what happens. I passed my evenings with Mr. and Mrs. Micawber during the remaining term of our residence under the same roof. And I think we became fonder of one another as time went on. On the last Sunday, they invited me to dinner, and we had a loin of pork and applesauce and a pudding. I had bought a spotted wooden horse overnight as a parting gift to little Wilkins Micawber, that was the boy, and a doll for little Emma. I had also bestowed a shilling on the orphling who was about to be disbanded. We had a very pleasant day, though we were all in a tender state about our approaching separation. I shall never, Master Copperfield, revert to the period when Mr. Micawber was in difficulties without thinking of you. Your conduct has always been of the most delicate and obliging description. You have never been a lodger. You have been a friend. My dear Copperfield... For so he had been accustomed to call me of late has a heart to feel for the distresses of his fellow creatures when they are behind a cloud. And a head to plan and a hand to, in short, a general ability to dispose of such available property as he could be made away with. I expressed my sense of this commendation and said I was very sorry we were going to lose one another. My dear young friend, I am older than you, a man of some experience in life, and of some experience, in short, in difficulties, generally speaking. At present, and until something turns up, which I am, I may say, hotly expecting, I have nothing to bestow but advice. Still, my advice is so far worth taking that, in short, I have never taken it myself and... Um, the... Here, Mr. Micawber, who had been beaming and smiling all over his head and face up to the present moment, checked himself and frowned. The miserable wretch that you behold. My dear Micawber! I say... Returned Mr. Micawber, quite forgetting himself and smiling again. The miserable wretch you behold. My advice is never do tomorrow what you can do today. Procrastination is the thief of time. Collar him. My poor papa's maxim. My dear, your papa was very well in his way, and uh, heaven forbid that I should disparage him. Take him for all in all. We ne'er shall, in short, make the acquaintance, probably, of anybody else possessing at his time of life the same legs for gaiters and able to read the same description of print without spectacles. But... He applied that maxim to our marriage, my dear, and that was so far prematurely entered into in consequence that I never recovered the expense. Mr. Micawber looked aside at Mrs. Micawber and added, Not that I am sorry for it, quite the contrary, my love. After which he was grave for a minute or so. My other piece of advice, Copperfield, you know. Annual income, 20 pounds... Annuals expenditure, 19 and 6. Result, happiness. 
annual income £20, annual expenditure £20, ought and six, result misery. <laughs> the blossom is blighted, the leaf is withered, the god of day goes down upon the dreary scene, and, and in short, you are forever flawed, as I am. To make his example the more impressive, Mr. McCorber drank a glass of punch with an air of great enjoyment and satisfaction and whistled the college hornpipe. I did not fail to assure him that I would store these precepts in my mind, though indeed I had no need to do so, for at the time they affected me visibly. Our time is sadly almost up, but perhaps you could hear in that wonderful passage that mixture of melancholy and buoyancy, that um, enjoyment and relish when you're supposed to be serious or grim, that is so distinctive of Dickens. Disaster and hilarity together. And actually, I think for Dickens, as for Mr. Micawber, what's so wonderful about him that language, his language is his consolation as it was Dickens's. Time's up. Okay, I've got a really good final line which I'm All going right. to save for later. All right, right. Thank That's, you very much. That was John Mullen. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that was John Mullen and the company for Charles Dickens. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. It was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. If you'd like to enjoy the next two episodes straight away, then head over to intelligencesquared.com to sign up and become a member and enjoy more in-depth, honest debate and compelling conversations. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.